Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 14 through 17 is known as the Farewell Discourse. The Apostle John, who writes the Gospel of John, in the Farewell Discourse, is what we have dubbed it, is recording the final words of Jesus given to His disciples after the Last Supper, the night before His crucifixion. And in this final discourse, in these chapters, Jesus tells His disciples several things. He tells them that He is going away, back to the Father, and that He is going to send the Holy Spirit in His place to give the people of God direction and strength and hope. He is stressing to them that He's not going to leave them alone. We often remember the command of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Go, teach, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them. We often forget that that commission comes with a promise. And the promise was, after the commission, I am with you even to the end of the world. How is Jesus with us today? He's with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the farewell discourse in John, Jesus commands them to love one another. And He repeatedly expresses the unity of the love between He and the Father as He reiterates in different ways over and over that you should love one another as I have loved you. And in the discourse, it's where he gives the example of the true vine. We preached through that a few weeks ago. He's teaching us that we must abide in Him. I abide in Christ, Christ abides in me. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. He then warns of coming persecution. And then comes the closing words of the discourse, where Jesus prays for His people. And that should give us great comfort. Jesus prays for us. Jesus Christ prays for you and I. This is the longest prayer in John 17. It is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in any of the Gospels. It is commonly called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is acting as an intercessor. An intercessory prayer is simply someone that stands in the gap between God and the person. And they're joining them together in prayer. They're, they're pleading out to God on behalf of another person. They're interceding on their behalf. The challenge as I approach John 17 uh, is that just as a diamond reflects a thousand points of light, so this chapter reflects God's glory in numerous ways. And as with all Scripture, the preacher must choose and narrow down what points are we going to talk about in this chapter. So just know that we're going to leave out far more than what I'm going to talk about this morning. I almost cringed as I was finishing last night thinking, oh, there's so much here that I want to talk about. There's so much here that we could look at. How guilty are we, myself included, us, in feeding our hearts and minds on absolute drivel, banality, 
mindless, silly, lighthearted, empty calorie entertainment when there are words in the Bible like John chapter 17 that we read far too few and far between. The prayer of the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, praying to our Heavenly Father, a prayer that keeps us even today. I'll say this as a side note, Jesus is praying to His Father. When I address God as Father, I am addressing God as my Father. I am not in my mind when I stand in a pulpit and pray or in private prayer, I am not saying Father today to the exclusion of ignoring Jesus, ignoring the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. Our Father who is God, we're, in, we're encapsulating all of God. I'm praying to the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I'm praying to, um, to Jesus because they are all part of one God. And so I say that because um, I've known people who uh, in the past, and I've had these conversations with them where they had a really bad understanding of the Godhead to where they would say, I felt like I needed to pray to the Father and then I needed to pray equal time to the Son and then I needed to pray equal time to the Holy Spirit so they wouldn't get jealous. And um, that's not God. That's not how God works. That's not God's nature. The thing to know about God and the most fundamental tenet of Christianity is that there is one God. And so when I say Father, I am praying to God, the one true and living God. <clears throat> As I approach John 17, I think about the first time I saw the coast of Oregon. Last year when I saw Big Sur in California, when I stood standing back looking at the mountains in Washington, all places where I've just stood and just took it in, didn't even really think a lot, just stood there and stood in awe of the beauty that was before me. For others, I've heard them talk about the Grand Canyon this way. I've never been there, but you hear about the response is it doesn't do justice in pictures. You have to go and stand before the expanse and you just marvel at God's creation. Not trying to make sense of what I'm seeing, just being in awe that there is a God who can do this. That's how I feel when I read chapter 17. It's just too big for me and I know it. So I can't boil it down to three points or ten principles. It's just majesty, God's majesty in words. Since we have to choose how to approach John 17 this morning, I chose to approach it pastorally, meaning what is here for the people of God? There are majestic theological ideas here that we could spend hours gazing at, wondering at the glory of God, but I'm going to approach it this morning pastorally. This prayer ends the mark of Jesus' ministry. It begins a new chapter in his life that will soon end in his death, his burial and his resurrection, his glorification and his ascension. I'm going to divide prayer, his prayer this morning, into three sections for our sermon. And that's difficult to do, but the reason I believe it's possible is because this prayer does flow into different movements. It's almost like a, a great piece of music. Jesus is organized in his thoughts and we see him moving from one idea to another idea 
to another idea. And that can teach us something about how we pray. In fact, one of the biggest takeaways that I hope you get today is how can I incorporate what I learned from Jesus' prayer into my own prayer life? I mean, who better to teach us how to pray than Jesus? This was certainly the disciples' approach. They didn't ask Jesus, Jesus to teach us how to heal the sick or raise the dead or go fishing for our tax money. They said, Jesus, teach us how to pray because they understood that when he went out into the wilderness to pray, he came back full of the spirit and power. Lord, we want that. Teach us how to pray. And Jesus did not rebuke them. He gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. He said, when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, honored be your name. And he gives them and it's sequential and it's logical and it's thinking. So I hope that we take away something today and say, Jesus, let me learn how to pray from the way that you prayed in John 17. So we'll look at this in three parts. Part one, and this is where I want to read this morning in John 17, the first five verses. John 17, one through five, Jesus prays to his Father for his own glorification. And when you see that word where Jesus prays for him to glorify his Son, that word glorify simply means to positively acknowledge, to recognize, or to esteem one's character, nature, or attributes. <clears throat> that is the ancient definition. That's not a Webster's definition. That's the definition of that word 2,000 years ago. Uh, to glorify me, to esteem me, to acknowledge and recognize me. So Jesus prays <clears throat> in verse 1 when Jesus spoke these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we have the idea of the Father and Son sharing glory, glorifying each other, and doing so in a way that retains the fact that there is only one God. And when we read about this mutual glory, we should think of how John begins his gospel in John chapter 1. I've probably referred to John 1.14 more than any other verse in this series. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> John is... John could have said the Word became human, the Word went into a body. This is the most, almost crude way that he could say it. Because there were people... Then, just as there are people today that deny that Jesus was truly a human being, that he, was, that he was man. And this is the way John is saying, Jesus becomes flesh. He is a, the Word becomes flesh in the incarnation, in the man Christ Jesus. Mary as his mother. Mary, an ordinary Jewish virgin gives birth to a human being. He's not like a human being. He is a person like you and I in his humanity. He had to learn to talk, to walk, to, to process information. 
They changed his diaper. He's not, he is so human. The, the miracle of the incarnation is that deity is, is kept shadowed and hidden behind this humanity. That he can grow up around people for years and years and people still never recognize and acknowledge that he is the son of God. He is divine because he is also fully God. So John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Now tie that to John 17 and John chapter 1, 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There will be an ongoing challenge for Jews who eventually become Christians to accept the deity of Christ because they know the Shema. Shema is just a Hebrew word for hear. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Would be the Shema. There are actually two other parts of the Shema throughout the Old Testament, but that's the foundational piece of the Shema. They would put this on their doorpost. They would, even today, uh, Orthodox Jews, if you go to Israel, you will see Jews with this in tiny little scrolls attached in places on their body that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Jews had to wrestle with, how can Christ be divine? Because we know that God is spirit. We know that God is eternal. How can this man be divine? One of the greatest contributions the Apostle Paul gives the church in his writings is reconciling how Jesus, the Son of the Father, is also God, and yet there remains only one God. I cannot go down that road this morning. That would be an entirely different subject. See 1 Corinthians 8.6. It is the, the crescendo of Paul doing this. Paul takes and reformulates the Old Testament Shema to incorporate Jesus into the identity of the one God. Retaining the fact that we are a monotheistic people. We believe in one God. So Jesus is praying in John 1... He's praying for his own glorification. Glorify your son. Why? That the son may also glorify you. It is a circle of glorification. The father gets the glory when he glorifies the son. And this rings of what we call Christian hedonism, which is an idea that changed my life years ago that says God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. The less I find my satisfaction in life outside of Jesus, and the more I find my satisfaction, joy, happiness in Christ, the more God gets glorified. I get fulfillment, I get happiness by finding my purpose, everything, my everything in Jesus. And in turn, when I do that, God gets the glory. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. And it is a similar idea here. He's saying, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus is talking about, now here's, here's where this flies in the face of everything that the world teaches. Jesus is talking about his own glorification right before he experiences death on a cross. The cross was an instrument of death that was designed not only to torture, but to put men to shame. Men would, we don't do this in crucifixion movies and in art. We cover Jesus with a loincloth. He was nude before the world, his, before his mother, 
before all the people that he had known all of his life. That was part of the shame, was to, to crucify him nude. And it was a common way to die. Everybody knew. The, it's not in Scripture, but the historians write about in the first century when you went into Rome, as you approached Rome, the roads that went into Rome, there would be men on crosses crucified. And it was a statement that when you come into this town, this is what happens to people who break the law. It would be like hanging somebody in the, the town square. It was a very common way to, to kill people. This was not a, an extraordinary event as far as, hey, today they're going to crucify somebody outside the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Not that big of a deal. Um, they did it to common criminals all the time. And Jesus, before he suffers this death, and he knows he's going to die on a cross, he says, glorify me, lift me up, exalt me. To Jesus it would be glory. We want to be glorified in this life. And sometimes the path to glory in the kingdom is for us to die on a cross. Maybe not literally, but figuratively we die on a cross. Jesus told his followers, you take up your cross every day and follow me. Paul said, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. Paul knew that the way up in the kingdom was down. Jesus taught that the the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if you want to be exalted, you humble yourself and become a servant daily. Verse 2, the Father has given Christ authority over all flesh to give eternal life. This is the purpose of why Jesus came, to seek and to save those who are lost. And Jesus tells us what eternal life is, that people know the only true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. It is not enough to believe in the God of the Old Testament to have eternal life. You must believe in Jesus Christ, His deity, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His teachings to receive eternal life. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is why we fly in the face of so many other religions when they say, is there only one way to eternal life? And to be a Christian is to be dogmatic about that answer and say, yes, the way is Jesus. And that outside of Jesus, um, there is no path to, to eternal life. We are a people who can have differing views on certain ideas in the Bible, but to be a Christian, to be justified, to be saved, to be glorified, to be raised from the dead and receive eternal life, you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, of Scripture, who incarnated Himself into human flesh, who is fully God, not semi-divine, but fully divine God. And you must believe He died for our sins, and we must believe that He rose again. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. And He ascended into the heavens, He is seated on the right hand of the Father, and He is making intercession for the saints. And if you believe that, it is no light thing. Thank God every day that He imparted unto you the gift of sight to open the blind eyes of your heart to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we brought life to you. Christ brings life to you who is dead in trespasses and sin. He declares us righteous when we were not righteous. He imputes to us His righteousness. You do not have the morality, you do not have the intellect, you do not have the drive, the determination to save yourself. It's not possible. It takes the righteousness of Christ, who it is imputed unto you. The righteousness of Christ is imparted unto you. It's given to you. 
in place of your filthy rags, of our self-righteousness. Christ puts His righteousness upon us. I am going to be saved. If I'm going to be saved, it's going to be because of the righteousness of Christ. It's the last verse of that song. I stand complete in Him and worship Him. That is a glorious and miraculous thing. Part two of his prayer, and this is the longest section, the longest reading, is verses 6 through 19. And this is where he prays for his disciples. Verse 6, You have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for your disciples. I am not praying for the world. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love the world. We know God loves the world. There are other places where Jesus prays for those outside of his flock. But in this particular prayer, he says, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. There is so much there. So much there. Jesus is only praying for those who have been given to Him. The believers who believe the words that He spoke. If you are a believer in Jesus and His teachings, you are included in this prayer. And I want Jesus to pray for me. I want to be counted among the number of people that Jesus says, you're in the group that I'm going to intercede for. I may never belong to a country club. If I do, it will be a, <laughs> it'll be a low bar of entry. I moved here, and immediately when I moved here, my next door neighbor had a, a golf hat on that had the name of a country club on it. And I said, hey, I said, I'd love to I'm looking for a place. I just moved here. I like to play. Is that a good place to play? Now, this is when Tony Romo was the quarterback of the Cowboys. He said, yeah, he said, it's a good place to play. He said, 
there's about a hundred thousand dollar fee just to be considered and that's not your annual dues he said uh, I'll tell you Tony Romo's on the waiting list that's when Romo was the quarterback of the Cowboys I said well maybe I'll find a different place to play and so we got to talking about it and the reason why he was wearing the hat because no neighbor nobody that lives in my neighborhood is going to be playing in that country club uh, he was actually going to school he was going to golf school and he was going to be to work in the golf profession and part of golf school was to caddy at that particular club he'll never be a member but he would caddy he said this is where george w bush plays he said this is where uh and I, I looked it up and there were all kinds of stories. There is no website. They don't need a website because they don't want you coming there. Um, top professional players have played entire rounds in just their underwear. Um, they don't allow women to, to play, although they did once allow Madonna and once allowed Condoleezza Rice, but as a rule, um, they don't. You had to be white to play there up until the 90s. This is the ultimate good old boys filthy rich country club in Dallas. Um, <clears throat> I may never belong to a place like that. I may never be counted in the elite of this world. I may never be featured in D Magazine of who's who in Dallas, and that's okay. Just as long as I am counted as one who Jesus says, you're in the group of people that I am praying for. That's all I care about being is in that group. Counted among believers, not preachers, not pastors, just Lord, let me be a believer in you. Let me be part of that number that you count as I'm praying for you. Because Jesus didn't just pray for us 2,000 years ago before his crucifixion. He is praying for us right now. I used to wonder, what is Jesus doing right now? I mean, he, he ascended into the heavens. Like, what is he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing, and this is found in more than one place, but Romans 8, that magisterial crescendo of the entire Bible in Romans 8. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what Jesus is doing. And then Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can nothing separate me from the love of God? Because back to verse 34, he is at the right hand of God. This is figurative language. The right hand of God is, is figurative. It is a position of power. It is a position, it is, a, it is an elevated, majestic position that Christ sits in now where he prays for us. And that's why nothing can separate us from God's love. We are secure in him because he is forever interceding for the saints. I am grateful for people who pray for me. But if no one ever prays for me again, Jesus is praying for me always. 
John 17, 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prayed for our protection through the name of God so that we may be one as Jesus and his Father are one. And this unity does not just include you. We actually believe this verse. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Christ was sent into the world for a purpose, and we know this and we hold on to this purpose that Christ was sent into the world. It's our salvation, why he came. But we also are sent into the world. There are a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about what is my purpose in life? What am I, what am I supposed to be doing here on this earth? And there are people who have done great things in the world seeking their purpose in life. There, there have been great medical advances, great composers, artists, writers, leaders, inventors. We think of all the things that we enjoy started because somebody said, this is my purpose in life. There was a Thomas Edison. There was um, the, the people that made the advancements in the medical field. Grateful for all of those. And you or may or may not change the world in a way that leaves your mark in the history book, but make no mistake, you also have been sent into this world by Christ for a purpose. Every single believer has a calling of ministry upon their life without exception. We all have something that God wants us to be doing in this world to fulfill our purpose that he sent us into the world. It is a very unbiblical, unscriptural way to look at the kingdom and the church to say there are preachers and pastors and people who do the kingdom work and there are people who just support that. So you know every believer is a minister. And then part three of his prayer is for those who will believe future tense, the believers to come. Verse 20 through 26 I do not ask for these only who are these only? That's the ones that his disciples now. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, prayed a prayer that covers every person who will ever come to him. Everybody who ever is, if there is a person today who knows nothing about God and comes to faith today, they will be counted as one who Jesus prays for in John 17 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John is going to use this phrase again. John writes, five books of the New Testament. John writes the Gospel of John. John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And John writes the book of Revelation. So the same man who writes, is on the Isle of Patmos, writing the 
the Revelation is writing these, recording these words of Jesus. In Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb that is slain from the foundation of the world. In other, world, in other words, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is not plan B in God's redemptive purpose. It's not as if God had this creation and He had this law that was instituted through the nation of Israel and, well, the law didn't work, so I'll try this. No, we understand there is continuity and unity throughout Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law. He is the true Israel. There is nothing sacred about the physical land of Israel today. People go there and have religious experiences and that scares me. Now I would like to see it for its historical value. I think that when I would read the, the scriptures that it would come alive more if I had been there and visited and actually seen some of these places. No doubt. I don't dispute that at all. But and it's been said before. I didn't say this but I will repeat it. There is no geographical center within Christianity. The whole earth is covered now with the glory of God. Jesus is the true Israel. Everything, all the promises of the Old Testament, Paul said, find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. So Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There is only one redemptive plan that God has. So when I read this, this phrase, of Jesus saying, you've loved me before the foundation of the world, I think of what John will later write in Revelation, that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was any of this, before God had a plan. This, this speaks to the sovereignty of God, what, what was talked about last week. You're not going to catch God by surprise. God God knows every thought of every person before they think it, every word before they say it, every action before they do it. God knows. And then he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I am in them. I never saw this till I prepared this sermon, but I looked at this prayer and I thought nothing can stop the gospel from reaching people from that day on because Jesus declared there are going to be believers. Jesus praying for the believers in the future seals the deal. Like there are going to be believers in the future because I have declared it in my prayer. And once again, Jesus prays for the unity of believers and for us to be in Him. Now the overarching theme of this final prayer, because there's a lot going on. I mean, Jesus is praying a prayer where there's just so many things going on. But what you see, if you read it slowly, and I've never, I've never read a chapter so many times in preparation for a sermon as I have John 17, because there's so much going on here. I just had to read it several times to try to understand what's going on here. And the thing that I saw finally was there's this final part of this prayer the overarching theme is this it is one of mutual indwelling christ dwells within his believers 
The Father dwells within Christ. It is through Christ that we have unity with the Father. Jesus and His Father are one. The greatest hope we could ever offer any person without Christ is that through faith in Christ and by dwelling in Christ and Christ dwelling in them, they too can be counted among those for whom Jesus prays. It's this idea of just mutual indwelling. How does that play out 2,000 years later after this prayer? How does that play out practically for us 2,000? How do I live out the prayer of Jesus? One way is for me to abide in Him. And that is signified through baptism. That's why baptism is so important. is because I am, Paul said, I am buried with Christ in baptism. The number one identifying way to speak of and refer to believers in the New Testament is not to call them Christians, is not to call them disciples. It is to refer to those who are in Christ. Paul will use a hundred times plus the phrase either in Christ or in Him. It's the way that Paul refers to his people. We are in Christ. Christ dwells within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's this idea of mutual indwelling. God is in us filling us with His Holy Spirit. We dwell within Christ. His Word dwells within us. No better way than to daily find a place to, um, to have the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, getting into your heart, getting into your mind. I would plead with you, I would implore with you to find a way. If you can't make a daily reading plan that takes you through four sections of the Bible every single day, seven days a week, Fine, but find some way, some place to get some good quality time of Scripture to put into your heart and mind if it's just one chapter. It's one of the things I struggle with with Bible reading plans is that it becomes a tick box. I did this today, I did this today, I did this today, and people read it so fast that they miss what is, what is going on there. I would rather somebody read slowly. I just read somebody's commentary yesterday. They said, I've, the last four weeks I've read the Gospel of Mark four times. Like I've read Mark once a week for four weeks in a row. They said, oh, the things that I see as I go back and just read it and read it and read it. Um, I would rather see people read Scripture like that than just to tick a box and get nothing out of it. But whatever you do, get that Word inside of your heart. You may not remember tomorrow what you read, Uh, yesterday, but there will be, if you will just faithfully put that Word of God into your heart, because reading Scripture is not like reading any other book. I love to read good books, but every book that I've ever read is faulty somewhere. Every one of my favorite authors, um, probably somewhere, my, my personal favorite author to read is Eugene Peterson. But Peterson will say something in one of his books that is no doubt wrong. Even if I don't recognize it or realize it's bad, it's wrong. Because he's not, he's not infallible. He's not perfect. So I read that. And it's helpful, but it's not the Word of God. But when I read Scripture, I know that every word in there is divinely God-breathed. And that something is transforming when I read that. Something is happening in real time. It's realigning my priorities. It's resetting my values. 
it's real-time transformation when that Word of God comes within my heart and mind. And if I will just trust the process and allow that Word to get inside me, it will affect the way that I make life decisions in the future. It will allow me to be a more faithful servant of Jesus Christ in the future if I will just trust that His Word makes alive, is powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. We need the word of God. One of the greatest ways I encourage people to pray, because people struggle with prayer. I think it's the Worst kept secret in Christianity and something nobody wants to talk about is most people struggle with prayer. They just don't know how to pray. We're pragmatic as Americans. We just, it doesn't feel practical. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's working right in the moment. Pray with scripture. Read scripture and then pray. Contemplate what you read and then, then pray to God about that. Talk to God. Use the prayers of Jesus. The Lord's Prayer, John 17. Use those as examples but pray, talk to God in sincerity from your heart, from your lips. Learn to talk to God and learn to read scripture. Nothing else will transform you. Nothing else will make you a disciple like those two things. Read your Bible and pray. Amen. Let's stand. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I read in a chapter today in our hearing, expounded upon it. Words that you prayed 2,000 years ago, but a prayer that is alive even today that is helping us in ways that we cannot imagine. The only way that I can sleep tonight, the only reason that I can have hope tomorrow is that you're for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? That you are truly for us. You want to see us make it. And we know that if we make it, it won't be on our own strength. It will be relying fully on the strength and grace that you supply. We acknowledge this morning how incredibly imperfect we are. I am an imperfect man. My life is not perfect. My theology is not perfect. My attitude is imperfect. And so it is with all of us. And so we look to you, Lord, to take the weaknesses and deficiencies that we have within ourselves and we cast those upon you so that our weakness will be glorified in your strength. Lord, that my strength is made perfect and my, my weakness is made perfect today in your strength and that you supply all power and all grace and all mercy. I pray today, Lord, that we would not be a self-reliant people, that we would not be a proud or arrogant people, but that we would be humble, that we would be servants, that we would have a servant mentality. Lord, that we are Christians. We are just Christ-like people, trying to be Christ-like. We are not Christ-like in every way, but every day, every day we get up and say, Lord, transform me a little more into your image through the experience of the Holy Spirit, through the exposure of your holy word. Lord, help us to reflect your glory every day just a little more perfectly to a world that is so desperate to see your glory. Be with us this week. Guide us, direct us, strengthen us, Lord. 
show us mercy, show us grace, Lord. And we will in turn, we're going to be disciples and we're going to be worshipers unto you is our daily prayer. Lord, let us worship you and honor you in every way possible. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.